0: Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Post-Military Podcast, where we share stories of veterans transition out of the military and their advice to other service members based on their life experience. Whether you are still in service, a veteran, or just someone preparing to transition into a new chapter of your life, there is something here for you to learn. I've included timestamps in the description of the episode, so head down there to see if there are any topics that are of particular interest to you. Also, while you're poking around, subscribing to the channel or podcast on your favorite platform is always greatly appreciated. Anyway, thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Solemnly swear, do solemnly swear that I,
0: defend, that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Post-Military Podcast. With me today is a former Air Force Combat Systems Officer, otherwise known as a CISO. For all of you losers out there who aren't in the greatest branch of the military, the United States Air (laughs) Force, she served on MC-130 platforms, which are the really cool cargo planes in AFSOC, and then transitioned out of the military where she works currently at Northrop Grumman. But also, if you are on LinkedIn, you've seen her writing and posting lots of amazing content on mental health, transitioning from the military, and dealing with a lot of subjects that we cover right here on this podcast. So I knew I had to have her on as a guest. Her name is Samantha Gasman, And Sam, thank you so much for coming on to the show today.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate you reaching out.
0: Oh, I'm... Um, Love talking to interesting people, especially people who have done cool stuff in the military, but then have also transitioned out and are actually trying to put some really good, at least what I think is really amazing thought leadership out into the space. And it's, it's just been really fantastic reading your work. And I'm excited to get to put your story out there for everybody to hear. So, yeah. Awesome. But let's, let's start at the beginning. Tell everybody about your military career.
1: Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, I spent eight years in Air Force Special Operations Command, which if you're in the Air Force, that's the coolest command to be in, especially as a navigator and and all things in all seriousness. When I was coming out of nav school, there were a lot of options that we had to pursue in terms of aircraft, but by far the one with the coolest mission I thought was the MC-130. It does aerial refueling with helicopters. It can also be refueled by a tanker. We dropped off cargo, special operations forces. We can fly really low level And got to do a couple of cool deployments to both Afghanistan and to Africa, which was definitely one of the highlights of my career. So yeah, I spent eight years in and as a flyer, but then I also had a unique opportunity to be a leader in an area where I don't think a lot of flyers get to do. I had two tours as an executive officer, which was uh, fascinating to see the inner workings of a squadron from the commander's perspective and learn about all the interesting personnel challenges that they have to face in that position. And then I also got a chance to be a flight commander for aircrew flight equipment, which had about 68 people in it. I had three senior NCOs and one chief who reported to me, and that was a huge learning experience for me because I was a pretty young officer still at the time. And I learned so much from my circle of senior NCOs and from leading a, a flight that size. Those are the tours that really stand out to me. Flying was great and I enjoyed it in its own right. But then the skills that I found were most transferable to the outside were the skills that I learned during the other jobs, which were being an EXO and then being a flight commander.
0: That's awesome. Uh, also, uh, welcome to your baby on the podcast. <laughs> hey. Oh no, it's totally fine. We love. We're a very baby-friendly podcast here. What is their name, so that everyone knows who's joining us?
1: Her name is Evie. Hello, and, Evie. Uh, yes,
0: she, thank uh... you for coming on to the show as a guest. <laughs> we'll have questions for you soon. <laughs> She'll
1: have answers. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, I think that that's a. I think that's a very cool. First of all, really cool career. That's really awesome that you were. Um, able to serve in those more administrative capacities from a leadership perspective, especially because I feel like a lot of pilots early on in their career or just aircrew in general are really robbed of their ability to be anything other than individual contributors, which is always mm. weird for me as someone who didn't work as air crew, like as an officer, it's like, are we leading people or are we like specialized? What's the, right. what's the point here? And so that's really cool. And so for you, when you served as an EXO executive officer the second time, so I'm assuming the first time was at like a squadron level. And then the second time was a, Is that a headquarters. headquarters? Oh, wow. Okay. Wh- Sock headquarters?
1: It was, yeah, it was, it was, I don't know if they call it a directorate or if it's considered a squadron, but it was the operations center at AFSOC.
0: That's sick. Okay. So were you at Herbert Field <laughs> your entire time?
1: Not the whole time. I got to spend a few years out in Okinawa, Japan at the beginning of my career. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, for training, I was in at Randolph. I was at Kirtland. I was at Little Rock. And then, yeah, I spent three years Okinawa and then three years at Hurlburt and then I got out and joined my husband's career where he got to go to a whole bunch of other places that I never would have had the chance to otherwise such Wait, garden we're... spots, such as Shepard Air Force Base. Hey,
0: <laughs> I know. Right. Dude. Shep- the, Actually,
1: Shepard was the, fine. I enjoyed Shepard. Shepard was cool. It's, yeah. it's
0: there, There's definitely worse bases. You can get stationed out in the middle of America for sure. Yes. Um, but you definitely crushed it in terms of uh, your first couple of duty stations. Uh, I think uh, people, uh, I'm jealous of your career. So anyway, <laughs> so for you, when as someone who's done exec twice as someone who was able to do leadership gets you all these cool operation operational things you're in like you said the command why did you decide to leave after eight years
1: that's a great question so it was personal and professional so from a professional standpoint the mc130p not the h the p was was retiring so the combat shadow was retiring and Basically, I had a choice to make. It was like, look, you can cross train to a new aircraft, which I considered. I actually had a fire control officer slot uh, with the gunship community, which I think would have been really fun. Um, you can cross train and extend your ADSC, your service commitment out by a few years because, of course, every time you take a new training or requalify, you have to um, up your service commitment. Or I could take that opportunity to say, you know what? My aircraft is has retired. It's done. Maybe I need to start looking at some other opportunities as well. As I said, flying was, I liked it enough, right? Like I did okay at it, but I'm not one of those people that has like a calling for flying. I wasn't obsessed with aircraft. I wasn't like always eyes to the sky wanting to fly as a kid or anything. So it was more of just, okay, I could keep doing this, or maybe now is the time to transition. Having eight years in and not 10, the halfway point to retirement, I felt like that was in my mind, even though it doesn't make any logical sense, Like I hadn't reached that halfway. So if I got out before then, it wouldn't be like a total waste, right? It's like, by the time you reach 10, it's like, why not just stick around like another 10? And so it, from a professional standpoint, I was like, if I'm going to choose a time to get out, then really my career has come to a natural close already. The aircraft is gone. I don't have another job lined up. And this would be the time. And then from a personal standpoint, I was getting older. I was in my late 20s when I made this decision. And as as a female, as a woman, I was like, maybe I'd like to have a family. And unfortunately, the clock is ticking on that for women of you know that age. And I just thought that if I'm going to get out, then maybe I can have a chance to have a family. And that's what happened. So I met my husband when I was stationed at Hurlberg. And when I decided to get out, we were not engaged yet. And he had orders to Los Angeles. So basically, I was leaving my full-time employment and following this guy to the complete opposite side of the country <laughs> with really no guarantee that it was going to work out. Yeah, so I did that. And that was a fun decision and fun explaining to my folks what I was doing there. But it all worked out. <laughs> it was all good. But I had a backup plan. When I left the military, I initially applied to grad school. I was like, I need to get a graduate degree that, that is helpful. The one I have from American Military University and Military Studies is probably not going to be the most helpful degree that I can have. <laughs> yeah, leaving. And so based on what I thought I wanted to do at the time, which was to join the DOD as a civilian or the National Security Department or something like that, I was like, I should get a master's in public administration. So I went looking around for the programs that met that need. And I actually got into the University of Chicago and the University of Southern California. And given my husband's orders, I was like, off to USC we go. So the the way I sold it to my folks was I'm like, look, I'm, yes, I'm following this guy across the country. Yes, I'm leaving my full-time position, but I'm going to get a graduate degree. And so if things don't work out, like at least I've got that. And it wasn't a complete charade of, of time. So yeah, so that's what we did. But then
0: we got a, I got a lot to dig into that because uh, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> it was fun. No, it's a, I love the story. And the first thing I want to dive into isn't in, personally related to that story but I'm curious I think a lot of people have this whole like once I cross the 10-year threshold I have to stay in and I had that opinion for sure you did at the time mm-hmm. do you have a more of evolved opinion of that <laughs> now that you've yes. spent time thinking about it yeah what is that
1: I mean, to a certain extent, I do feel like once you get up like past 15, 16, 17, you really have to do some strong evaluation as to whether it makes sense to leave if you want to leave. But yeah, I think at the 10-year mark or even less than that, it's all about individual decisions, right? If the military isn't right for you, and if you're not right for it, then why put yourself through 10 more years? 10 years is a significant amount of time. If you get to live to be 80, that's an eighth of your time. So wait. Please cut that if my math isn't right, but, (laughs) but like, I don't think it is, but yeah, it's still, it's a big amount of time. And so if you're wasting it doing something you don't love, or it's not serving your purpose and you're not serving it well, because you're not enjoying yourself, why put yourself through that?
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's, it's always sad, especially in cyber, you'd see, I would see a lot of folks that I worked with who were. Like clearly miserable, Mm -hmm. but we're like, oh, I've got seven years left, so I just I'll gut (laughs) it out. I was like, man, that's crazy to like. It it sounds crazy when you really break it down, not emotionally, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, you're like, I get it. I get where they're coming from because I was there at one point in my life, and I think that it's it's definitely weird that we have that. it out for that long of a time mentality.
1: And I also feel like people don't realize that most military members will not retire. It's a pretty small percentage that make it all the way to 20. And yet, at least for me, I felt there's like a pressure to make it all the way. That Certainly that was my goal, like coming out of RTC. I was like, oh, we'll do 20 years and I'll retire in my mid forties and I'll have another career. It'll be great. And then I feel like when you're in, at least in my community, and maybe it's different for others, I hope so. It was almost like looked down upon. It's because for NAVs, you have a minimum service commitment of 6 years after you get your wings and for pilots it's 10 so it's like right around the 6 year mark a lot of navs were leaving the service and pilots i feel are in a, in a little bit different position because their minimum commitment is halfway to retirement so i feel like for them it's it's a harder decision because they've already put in all that time so i definitely felt that there's a like an under underlying mentality or attitude where if you do less than the 20 that you're somehow like a lesser service member, or like you didn't do what you should be doing, or you didn't contribute as much as you could have. And maybe that's just perceived, and maybe that was something that I put on myself. But when people would get out around me and I'd hear the conversations about that person after they left, it's oh, so and so got out. Oh, wow, I can't believe they got out. And it's like this thing, this stigma about people choosing a different career. But then on the other side, that stigma makes no sense because they did what was best for them and they served their time. It's not like they're cutting out early and disappearing. They've done what they signed up to do. And there is no shame in saying, you know what? I reached my commitment. I I did what I was supposed to do. And now I'm going to move on to something else.
0: I think that's excellent advice for people who are currently going through that to not feel like they owe past what their actual commitment is, even though a lot of people do. For you though, like the Samantha of way back when, how did you deal with that? Not only that perception, but just like the move from unstructured, from structure to unstructured, like just, it was just a big shift from known to unknown, especially because you had an option to stay in and the gunship community is tight. Like that's a cool it would have cool, yeah. And how did you deal with that? those emotions of, I could stay in and extend what I know, but I'm choosing to try something completely new?
1: I think because the staying in would have still contained something, would have still been doing something new. Because I still ha- would have had to have gone to training for the gunship, Requalified on it, rebuilt my reputation in a brand new squadron, relearned a new mission. So to me, it was like new either way, but it was either new within the confines of what I was familiar with, AKA the military, or new outside of the military. And so for me, I feel like I cheated a little bit because I was already at the natural closing point, I feel. And then also, when you go to school, it provides a different type of structure right? So obviously I went to undergrad and that was its own little world. And then going to grad school, it's I'd been to school before, so I knew what to expect from a, a graduate program. I knew what to expect from being on site in school, going to classes. So I feel like, yes, I traded the military structure, but I replaced it with a school structure. And not saying that's like what everyone should do by any means, but it was, I think, perhaps less uncomfortable, perhaps, because I had, okay, I'm going to school, there was like a a next step that was defined, and it's in two years, I'll get this degree, and then I have to figure stuff out. But having said that, when I left, and I was trying to look for a job, it was still very intimidating. And it's funny to look back at the list of positions I was looking at, because they have nothing to do with any, there's no rhyme or reason to the jobs I was looking at. It was like, YMCA coordinator, which of course I have no experience in doing. And then like a GS position that would be basically navigator work, but as a GS, and it was all over the place. And again, I stayed within my comfort zone and I found a job as a contractor that I felt would be an extension basically of my military service. It was very much like executive officer work, but I was wearing civilian clothes instead, and I was still working on a base. And I was like, that'll be That'll make it easier because I still have the community I'm familiar with surrounding me. It's work that I already know how to do, even though it's a slightly different mission and command. And I'm going to school, which has its own structure. So I guess at the time it didn't feel quite as like overwhelming. It certainly was in some aspects, but I do remember the day that I officially left. So You're on terminal and then there's the actual day. And when you retire, there's a full ceremony to commemorate your service and people say nice things about you and you get to give flowers to your spouse or whatever, and you get to say your piece and have that closure. When you separate, there's none of that. There's nothing at all. It was just, it was like a day that started and ended in like the normal way. And there was no recognition that, okay, now I am Sam and I'm not, A captain and I'm not in the military and my terminal leave has completed and now I'm out on my own. And I think that for those of us who separate, that makes it even harder to make the transition because you don't have a clear bookend to your career. You had a smart, a starting bookend. You raised your hand to commission or you swore your oath of enlistment and that was your introduction. But then when you leave, there's nothing on the way out. It's just okay. And today I'm not a captain anymore. Today I'm just a regular
0: person. I recently had a guest on, um, she talked about something very similar, which is in the military, we're just used to doing stuff. And so (laughs) most people just immediately jump into the next thing. Like for me, I literally had two days between when my terminal leave started and when I started working at Amazon and I, it just rolled straight in and Mm. I never gave myself that bookend. I just rolled into the next thing and uh, it probably wasn't the right choice for me. But for in your opinion, what do you think that what do you think people should be doing to be able to provide themselves with that mental bookend and like that closure?
1: I think if you have the benefit of being in the area that you left the military in for your terminal leave, I didn't because we had moved across countries. My leave was primarily spent moving and and living in LA, which was an experience. But I think if you can still, if you're still in that same area, then go ahead and do the going away lunch or whatever, even though it, it probably feels cheesy and you probably don't want the attention at the time. I think looking back, people will be grateful that they had that one last hurrah to spend with their unit, their friends, their colleagues, because once that uniform is off, these people may still be your friends or they might be your buddies, but there's a difference now because now you're on the outside looking in and they're on the inside. And frankly, a lot of folks just, they it's hard to find the time to keep up with folks once they're not like in your immediate circle anymore. And once you no longer have a pressing need to chat with them. And it sounds horrible, but it happens. They're out. So they're out. That's not my concern anymore. And so I think having that kind of last get together, whether it's official or not, if it's a gathering at your house, whatever, but just something to commemorate your time. If you have an opportunity to have your last decoration read out loud by your commander or whatever the case may be, like, yes, you hate it and it's embarrassing, but still do it. I think it's just, it's important. And if you don't want to do all of that, if you're really like, look, Sam, like, I don't want any of that, then fine. But I would say try and do all those things that are going to be important to you. If the shadow box is important, then get it done. I still haven't done mine. It's been seven years. It's been sitting somewhere else. Find a way for you to commemorate it and to close it for yourself. Like Whether that's just writing about it would be very therapeutic, I would think. Talking to your family, your friends about it. But something just to differentiate between the before and the after. This is the day that is the the delineating line between my time in the military and that chapter of my life and now this new one. And it doesn't have to be sorrowful. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I'm leaving. This is a sad occasion. It can be, now I get to look forward to these things. Maybe it's more of a celebration of, hey, I'm looking forward to this next step. I get to go to school. I get to take a break. I get to start a new position, whatever the case may be. I do think it's important to have that line in the sand where you're like, okay, and now this chapter, have that almost say it out loud. Okay, now I'm done. (laughs) It's all over.
0: Yeah, I think that having the event and drawing that line is really important. And something that I would also encourage veterans to think about is have some means by which you take time and don't immediately roll into the next thing, specifically in a job. I think school is different. I think that school is a little bit more understood because it's so structured. It's very easy to just not do I don't want to say do it on (laughs) autopilot, but and it gives yourself the space to really process like i'm not in the military anymore because i don't mm-hmm. think people really think about that it's no. just it's just like appointment dd-214 done and then you're like oh sh- shit Like, yeah. <laughs> oh
1: no i'm <laughs> really done now
0: yeah exactly and yeah and I it don't carries think...
1: with you too into your new job so when mm. i was working and going to school i'm hundred percent certain that I was insufferable because any opportunity I had to be like, oh, back in my day, it was there. Oh, terrible. Like I I bet it was uh, so annoying. Like I would be the worst coworker ever back then, I think. Yeah. Because everything was like what I was in the air force, like yesterday. This is how we did it. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Like I know everything. And some of that I think was brought on by the environment because like I mentioned, I was a contractor. I was doing a work that I was familiar with and I was interacting with these peers that literally the week before I would have been in the same uniform doing the same stuff with the same concerns as they were. But now because I was in civilian clothes, they looked at me like, do you know what you're talking about? Why do you have this position? Yes. And I was like, let me tell you. So yeah, I do think it's that that that's really important.
0: I completely agree. And it's yeah, it's just uh, when one of my guests posed like the do you have you ever thought about do you ever think about what was next? I was like, Nope. Never even spent a single second envisioning like what I would what me outside looked like. I was just like, I gotta get my VA paperwork done and I've gotta mm-hmm. get a job. And since yep. I work in cybersecurity, it's gotta be at Amazon. And right. then if I don't, I'm a fucking failure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's what my mindset was, which was just the worst. It yeah. is what it is. Well, because um, you're
1: so used to everything being taken care of for you. You get the new assignment, you're given the deployment orders, you're even I was thinking about this the other day people get so attached to their MOS or their AFSC and they're like, Oh, I have to continue in cybersecurity or I have to continue in logistics. But when you think about why you were put in that job, it really had nothing to do with you as an individual. Okay, well, hey, Sam, we know that you love flying. Like how'd you like to be a navigator? That wasn't the conversation, right? It was, what does the air force need? What does the army need? What does the Marine Corps need? Okay. You met this minimum score, like the ASFAB, for example, on this test. And therefore you're put into this bucket of, MOS or AFSC. There at no point is there any consideration to, I wonder what Lieutenant so and so would like about this. So, this need that we have to continue in a job that wasn't, that we didn't select really, it was given to us, it doesn't make any sense. It's like you're given this opportunity to do what you want now. And a lot of us are like, oh, I know, I'll be an XO, but as a contractor, it's a great idea. No, like you don't have to do that. And I think it just, it takes time for you to be like, I am not my duty title. I am not a navigator anymore. And I think for me, it was a bit easier because there's no such thing as a navigator out here in the real world. People use things like Alexa and Siri to get around. But so yeah, just decouple yourself from your job because you don't have to do it anymore. If you hated it, stop doing it. One of the women who also runs a podcast, Amanda Huffman, you may have heard of her. She's been very successful in her her podcast and her books. She was an engineer by trade and also an engineer in the Air Force. And she's like, you know what? I hate being an engineer. I really can't stand it. I'm going to pivot completely and start writing and producing podcasts. That's got nothing to do with her training or her education, but it's what she wanted to do. For vets, I would just say, don't feel so tied to your job because it wasn't it was chosen for you now you get to choose
0: and what do you think the discovery process for new things should look like because i don't <laughs> <we're>, or did <laughs> what did yours look like and now what do you think it should look like
1: oh my gosh what mine looked like was just a series of trial and error like i said i stayed within my comfort zone i took a job that i knew i could do and i knew would that I couldn't really fail at. I completely lowballed myself on the salary and had no idea how that worked. Plus, then California taxes, it was like a double whammy. I looked at my first paycheck and I was like, Oh wow, that's not <laughs> what I was expecting. So I think for me, it was just like, it was getting out of the comfort zone slowly, but surely with each position that I took. It was like, Okay, this is a little bit newer. I haven't done this before. And I think that many people follow that same discovery pattern it's like they they want to have the structure of the military so they choose a position that's very similar to what they did or something that they're comfortable in and then as they come to this recognition that they don't have to do that or maybe there's another opportunity or maybe frankly they just don't like it and they want to branch out Then it's we slowly like we crawl. Oh, I'll I'll try this now. And let's see how that works. We're still like very timid about it. And and that's fine. I, I don't think that you need to make these grandiose changes just because you've left the military. But I also think that is probably a product of not really planning for it and not really thinking a lot about it. I know for me, I put my papers in and then six months later I was done. It wasn't one of those, it wasn't like a years long process where I was like, okay, two years from now. I know that I'm gonna be out and I should really start thinking about it. So I think if, if you're transitioning and you have a good lead time into it a year or more, I think there's probably more opportunity for those folks to think about, okay, what is my comfort zone defined as? What positions would I be comfortable in? And then what are those positions that are maybe a stretch for me? And how can I gain the skills or the knowledge necessary where I feel more comfortable in this new environment, even if it is a slightly different job or skill set? So going back to your question of what should it look like, it should look like you doing some self-awareness and reflection one to two years before you leave and thinking about what would make you feel comfortable, what are some positions that maybe you'd like to explore and haven't because of your role in the military, what are some skills that you really enjoy or what are some things you really enjoy doing, um, and how can that turn into a career? For me, I really like writing. And I really like storytelling. And I like music, too. But that's an aside. I've never made it to the Mariah Carey status that I sought to be. But um, when I thought about what I enjoy doing, and how I can spend my time and have it disappear instantly without me even knowing that the time has passed, it was really writing and storytelling. And so finally, after, what, four or five positions and two companies and moving around, I was like, it would make sense. <laughs> Communications would make sense. It's reading it's writing, it's storytelling it's it's all this stuff that I actually enjoy doing, and so it took five years for me to figure that out because I just wasn't deliberate in thinking about it before I just like you said kind of went with the flow and I'll figure it out when I get there that's a future Sam problem that's not a current Sam problem, I and mean, that's the worst <laughs> that's the worst thing you can do
0: yeah, I completely <clears throat> agree, and I think that it's yeah it's funny that we tell these we like I would agree I should have like the way that my transition worked out, I had about a year to plan and I did a lot of ideating and ended up inside of cybersecurity anyway. And (laughs) I don't know if that's the right choice. Like I'll find out later, but I would say it's funny because two years, I don't even know if two years is enough time because you don't know what you don't know. And it's so hard to project outside of the box in the military because so few people were anything outside of the most people it was college military mm-hmm. or high school military and so yep. we don't know what the adult world is like yet so ideating outside of it's really difficult and, and that's
1: why when you have friends and buddies who get out mm-hmm. don't drop them like a hot cake stay in touch but if only if nothing else, to learn what they did and to learn some do's and don'ts. Obviously, be a good person to oh get in on them, but but it's also really beneficial because here's someone who's been there, done that, who can help you and like, you can have discussions. And frankly, when I left, I was amazed at the people who stayed in touch and the people who didn't, people that I was very close to who I thought would be there. It's like they they were not. And then those who I never thought in a million years that they would keep up with me, they did. And it was very random about who did and did not. I think if you are a year or two out and you have friends and buddies who have left the service, check in on them because it'd be nice to hear from you, but then also check in to see how their journey has been and like learn from them and see what has worked for them and and what hasn't, and then use that to inform your own journey.
0: Yeah. Maintaining that community is so incredibly important and being able to tap into either people or the veteran community who are doing things you might be interested in is Mm -hmm. such an important piece of the puzzle that I don't think individuals take enough time in doing because I think people view, oh, once I hop on LinkedIn and start asking people about their lives, like I have to be getting out. Like I have to be in the literal process of exiting the military. Mm-hmm. And you can ideate on stuff all of the time. You don't have to execute on anything. Like, don't call people five years out and go, <laughs> I need a job. That's execution. That's not okay. But calling a veteran who works in a company and if you want to learn out what AWS is, like, hit me up. I'll tell you all about it. You don't have to be getting out. I'll just tell you how it is. And those are beneficial things to do earlier than later. And so I think, and I think that it's such an amazing piece of advice that you gave to just add, like leverage those outside contacts because we don't know what we don't know in the military, which, yeah, it was... And, uh, and
1: asking around within your circle in the military while you're still active isn't going to be helpful either because either they're going to look down on you for leaving early... Or worse still, they're going to give you some bad advice because they also have not been in that situation. They don't know. So it doesn't help you to like spin your wheels by asking your friends who are still active because they don't have that experience. And something else that I learned when I was getting out is jobs that I thought would be a good fit because of the skills I thought I had or the things that I wanted to do actually are a little bit more involved. And I'll give you an example. And that is when I was... As a, I was a project manager at Northrop, and that was my first gig um, at the company. And then I was like, you know what? I really miss leading people and like being involved in people things. Like when I was a flight commander, that was what I enjoyed most was like helping the airmen and being there for them and doing all this stuff. I'm like, oh, obviously, people leadership and getting involved with people equals human resources. That is the civilian equivalent to what I did as a flight commander. And I learned very quickly that's not accurate. That human resources is not just something you like hop into because you're good at leadership or you like people. It's actually a whole profession, no way. And I would have known that if I had reached out to people ahead of time and been like, tell me about HR, what qualifications do you have? What did you need to do to gain the skills that you have? Because I learned that it's compensation, employee relations. There are processes um, involved in HR that I had no clue about. Writing an OPR, an EPR... Performance review is not the same as helping uh, with performance reviews on the civilian side. In fact, they're completely different in every way. So, again, like if you have an idea of what you, the type of work that you like doing, it may be that the job you think equates to that is not quite what you think it is. And so, those informational interviews with people in those roles are really going to be enlightening to you to learn what they really entail. If you call me and ask me what communications does on a day-to-day basis, I will tell you. And if you think it's this thing and I'm telling you it's not, now you know that, hey, maybe it's right for you, maybe it isn't. Or maybe this isn't the right company for you. Maybe there's another one that does more in line of what you're thinking about. But if you don't ask those questions and if you don't reach out, you're just you're guessing. And you have to learn the hard way, which is I think what you and I both did and what many people do. But vets like to learn the hard way. We just we, we just love doing that.
0: Yeah, we like to just like grin and bear it. When and in, in line with that, we talked already about that pressure to make it all the way or just like gut through like ten years of your life. When you left your first job at did you have any did you have to deal with any of those feelings when you left your first job to eventually go to Northrop Grumman? Was there any kind of loyalty or I need to like just gut it out and just stay in my first position?
1: Not really. Yeah. I think if I had taken a job within AFSOC, like if I'd stayed in Florida and maybe got a job as a GS there, I might've had more of that loyalty or feeling of sentimentality. But because I was in a completely different spot in a different command with different people, I didn't really feel that need to like just stick it out. And the other thing is, I think the major difference is I wasn't a GS, I was a contractor. And so a lot of the reasons why that wasn't a good fit for me was because I was close to what I did before, but I wasn't quite like in the in crowd. And it was dumb, like stupid things like, oh, the unit is having a down day. Not for you, you're a contractor. The unit is doing a barbecue this afternoon because it's a long weekend. Oh, but not for you because you're a contractor. The rules around like getting coins. You're not supposed to be able to receive coins from the commander if you're a contractor. And so even though I was like with military people and in an environment I was comfortable in, there was still like those little niggling things that were like, oh, but you're not really one of us though. Like you're not really in that crowd anymore. And that was really hard because I'm like, well, if I don't belong... In this crowd, which is what I've grown up in for the last 12 years, then where do I belong? And so, when I looked at Northrop Grumman, I was like, okay, here's a company that has the same values that I do. They support the warfighter. They're looking into space exploration. They have a lot of the same values and things that I care about within their scope of work, within their product lines, and they're still it's still serving a, a purpose greater than ourselves, which is national security. And so, at a macro level, the company. Is aligned with what I want to do and what I want to contribute to, but it's not so close to the military that we've got that I'm like working on a base or always interacting with uniformed personnel. There's a lot of veterans in the company, which is helpful because there's a community of 18% of us who get to you know rub elbows and jeer each other on about you know service rivalries. But it's not the military. We serve the military, and so I think that was part of the reason why I didn't feel awkward was because it was like, I'm still like at a macro level, still serving the purpose that I want to serve, which is national security and helping the military.
0: Gotcha. That's really, yeah, I definitely get that. And I love that you were able to um, define what your values were or what you wanted your job values to be, and then apply them to a company. Because I think that so many people don't do that. And then they just end up at any company because that company pays big bucks. And then they are like, why do I feel unfulfilled in this thing? Uh, Which I I think is very common for a lot of veterans. The next thing that I want to ask you about is family. As a woman who wants who wanted to get out and have a family what was it like for you contending with these desire I feel especially in the military there's very much so like a career focused mindset.
1: Mm-hmm. In
0: America it's also a career focused mindset, <clears throat> but then you want to but then you want to emphasize a portion of your life that is very much so not your career. Those mm-hmm. things can exist in tandem you're doing it right now, but what was that like for you having to work through de-emphasizing the military to emphasize this thing that I want to pursue.
1: Challenging, because I was not ready for motherhood in the slightest. And I think one of the contributing factors to me wanting to get out was I had seen multi-mill relationships can work. There's any number of examples. You probably have a couple of friends yourself that have made it work. In my community, there were several as well. But what I saw was, yes, the marriage may be working, and that's like a generous term, But there's always going to be conflict around whose career takes priority. Who do we follow around? Who's going to give up this so that the other person can do that? And if you don't get a joint spouse assignment, what are you going to do? And when there are kids involved, it becomes even more complicated. in enacting the family care plan and all of that. And so that was like, okay, I don't want to do that. If I marry this guy and we are mill to mill, My career is going to going. It's going to have to lead the way because there's only so many places that my aircraft is housed, right? It would be Hurlburt Field, and so he would basically be confined to Hurlburt Field and like trying to find different positions on base to fill, and not progressing his career. And maybe it would work better if you were both in the same AFSC or the same MOS where you can progress at the same time. But when I looked at it, it was like, okay, there's already going to be a level of Maybe resentment or sacrifice that's going to have to occur if the mill to mill relationship's going to work. And I think marriage is hard enough already without putting that on top of it. And I think being a military spouse, it definitely has its challenges. But when it comes to making that decision for the family, I think it's a no brainer. I'm able to come with my husband wherever we go. There's no restriction aside from some overseas assignments. We will come with him everywhere. It's not like I have to say, oh, I can't because my aircraft is here. And so I think that helps the family dynamic. And then insofar as kids are concerned, yes, childcare is crazy expensive. And yes, it is still challenging to work and have kids in school or childcare, what have you. But because there's no risk of me being deployed and him being deployed at the same time, we will always have one of us around to assist and to parent and to be there for our kids. And so I think in that way, being a civilian has been really advantageous for us as a family because we can spend that time with them that we would want. Right now, I'm very fortunate. I get to work from home and I have, we employ a, a nanny to help us during the day while I'm working. But I get to see my kids when they come home from school and I get to see them at lunch. And if I was active duty still, that, that wouldn't happen. I would, I'd be on a weird flying schedule where I might be flying at 3 a.m. or something. And then that doesn't even get into the challenges of the wait list for the CDC and some of the obstacles there. So I think being a civilian, being a military spouse, again, has its challenges, but in terms of raising a family and going that route, I wouldn't trade it.
0: I agree with you. And I think that's amazing that you found a place where you can, where you've been able to prioritize your family values over work values. But what advice would you give to people who are maybe not just necessarily family, but struggling to de-emphasize work in terms of the value that it provides them? Because I do believe a lot of people struggle with having a family or other things like that because to them, work is so central to the core of their being mm-hmm. that they can't let it go like and and i feel like for women it's almost you almost have this like uh, catch-22 of like, you're supposed to have baby like you're supposed to have kids but then also you're getting so much cross chatter from people who are like career if you're doing something cool that is your value in society and so yeah. what advice would you give to people who are having issues de-emphasizing work as their central focal point of value?
1: I think you have to look at yourself and do some digging and some reflection. I think for me, it's about who's going to care more if I drop dead tomorrow, my company or my family? I think the answer to that's pretty clear. And so
0: (laughs) I would hope it would be
1: my family, depending (laughs) on the day, you know. but I said, so from that perspective, family comes first. And so I feel what you're saying though. It is very difficult because either, either you're a stay at home mom and therefore you do nothing, right? That's the perception or you're a working career woman and you don't take care of your kids. Like either way there's judgment against women. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. And then it's, you just, you can't win either way. And so I I think it's just, you have to be comfortable with yourself and the value that you're giving yourself. And you have to know like where those boundaries are. (sighs) <sighs> that's a good one, Billy. You, you got me. Uh, <laughs> it's <clears throat> for me, I, I am a mother first. My kids come first. If there's something that they have going on at school, I make every effort to be there. And because the work will be there, the work will be there. When I get back, I can, you know, log on later in the evening and, and get it accomplished. But I can't go back and go to my kids school event. I can't go back and chaperone the field trip because that's going to be over and that'll be done but the PowerPoint presentation that needs to be completed, that'll be there waiting when I get back. That's not to say that I I don't work hard because I do, but it's just, it's a matter of finding the right balance for you. And that's going to look different for everybody.
0: Yeah. I think I, I love the, the, the drop dead analogy is always classic. I think that that's, <laughs> uh, that's definitely the. I like to go with the full drama here. Listen, it's, it is what it is. But yeah, I think that, what I would tell anyone out there who's listening is something that I've really had to struggle with is, um, my, I didn't realize how central to my identity my work was until very recently. The Mm -hmm. podcast has certainly helped me with that, but I was like my current work situation at Amazon's fantastic. I work from home. I get to, I've got phenomenal hours. The company's good to me. And every single day early on in my career, I would log in and go, this is so boring. I, and I would literally look at other jobs that I felt were more cool mm-hmm. because if I have a boring job, then who am I? And I've had to take a lot of, I've had to take a lot of steps back to go like, why does it matter? Like, why mm-hmm. does me working as a consultant at Amazon, why does this have to have this overstated effect? And now that my wife's pregnant. It's does that really matter in conjunction, like in comparison to my child is no. And for everyone out there who's listening, Sam has amazing advice. And I would just add on and just say, really think about like, where does work fit in your life style? Like, where does it, like, where does it, how much value do you draw from it? Because if it's a lot, that might not be the greatest thing ever. And it's something that should at least be evaluated. And I would highly encourage you to do
1: so. Yeah. And I think it's important as well to carve out the you that you are post-military, and what are those things that while well, you were active duty that you had to suppress? What are those hobbies that you didn't have time for them because you were deployed or you were gone? What are those things that make you happy that have nothing to do with the Air Force mission or the Army mission, but you just enjoy for the sake of enjoying them? Do those things, right? Like you, you can do those. And if you can monetize them and make a job out of it, even better. For me, writing is one of those things. I like writing. And so one of the things that I did when I became a veteran was I started writing more. And then as a result, I was published a couple of years ago as a children's book author. And that is something that is completely separate from my military career, has nothing to do with the accolades and the decorations that I had there, but it's something that like proves to me that my value has continued beyond the military because it has nothing to do with that. It's something that I've carved out for myself that is 100% me, like post-military me, that could have only been done and would have had the time necessary to be done after I'd left. And so whatever that is for you, I would find, I would encourage you to find that. And again, if you can build a job around it, great. If you can't, and it's just a hobby, then do that as well. I don't, that, those things that you enjoy, they're not, don't view them as unnecessary or I don't know, extra. If you enjoy doing something, just do it. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be good. If you like to paint in watercolor and it sucks, you like it, go for it. Find that thing that you enjoy doing.
0: Yeah, I think that we I think that veterans and at least me I've definitely had to struggle with working on I call it like shooting myself. I mm-hmm. always go I should be doing something more important when I want to sit down and edit a podcast episode or I want to play video games because I love video games. there's a part of me that you should be doing. Any number of other things, like you should be reading <laughs> a book, like one of those up there on like <laughs> self development or some other like crap. And not that that stuff's bad, but it's like, why would I? Why do I feel this constant pressure to be doing something else when I could be doing something that genuinely just makes my life enjoyable? And that is a thing that I'm still very much trying to figure out where that comes from. Is like mm-hmm. the like that constant negative evaluation of just if I do 14 things right and I had a list of 15, I will tell you I failed because I didn't get a hundred percent. 14 of them, but that one (laughs) is going to bring down my day. And uh, You're
1: evaluating that opportunity cost. Okay, I'm spending time doing this, but there's 10 other things I could have been doing. But is that one thing that you're doing providing you enjoyment? Is it providing value? Are you more relaxed as a result? Does it enable you to do those 14 other things? Then it was worthwhile one of the things that I really it being about working remotely is I can go for a walk in the middle of the day or in the morning or whenever. And yes, it's time away from my desk, it's time away from my computer, but I will tell you it's some of my most productive time for working, even though I'm not sitting at a desk because I'm thinking and I'm strategizing and I'm working out things in my brain that maybe I had been struggling with. And yes, it looks like I'm just taking a walk around the block. And from anyone on the outside looking in, that's what I'm doing. But for me, it's so important to get that mental clarity because it allows me to be more productive when I do come back to work. And similarly, when I'm off the clock, when I'm not working, I do enjoy watercolor painting and I do suck at it, but I like it. And so... Yes, could I be like writing my next Substack newsletter, which I really need to do? Yeah, I could be doing that. But in the moment, I'm having fun and I'm relaxing. And it's because I'm allowing myself that downtime, I can then be more productive when I go back to it the next time.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. And I just, I wish that more veterans were able to learn, quickly learn how to prioritize that relaxing, that relax, relaxation And not just, not just always go, what do I have to do to get my grind on and all these other things post-military, which, because I just think it burns people out. Like we, we were so used to doing 1 million and one things when we're in the military and then we get out and there's just, there's less things in your job. And then you go I need more stuff. Give me more stuff. If I'm not busy, that means I'm not useful. And I I just think that drives people insane. And then you just get burnt out real, real fast, which is not great. Not great. So for you, for writing, how did you decide that was something you wanted to explore when you got out of the service?
1: Honestly, I think it's something that I knew that I wanted to do from a much younger age, I've always enjoyed writing and writing stories and just, I've always had a kind of a natural inclination toward it. And so I think it was like, okay, it's something I, how can I align my personal interests with my professional interests? How can I take something that could make money and turn it into a job? Or how can I take a hobby and make it into something? Or are there career fields out there that already utilize this skill quite heavily? And maybe that's that last one is the one that's like the take-home message, right? Okay, I have this thing that I like doing. Where's What type of position is there that would en- enable me to do that thing most of the time? And if there isn't, maybe that means there's a small business in your future where you do make something out of that. Because there's there's so many folks who... I think veterans make great small business owners because they have a very like select or very niche skill that they want to use and to provide uh, a service that they want to provide others. And they also have the discipline to, to build something from nothing. And we're like used to that hardship. And so I think that if that's your route, then go for it. Go all in. Very difficult because I had a lot of ego coming out of the military, to be honest with you. I had done really well in my career. I was at the top of my game. I felt when I left, I worked on a cool airplane. I had a cool job. I was the cool, my husband's a medic. So it's not that it's not cool, but it's not quite as cool as AFSOC. Right. And so it was like, I had this cool operations job and now I'm like the missus. And I felt it most keenly when we were at events and People would come up to us to speak to us, I'm using air quotes for those of you who are listening, but they would really be talking to my husband and then I was just like this thing that was in the way. Oh yeah, whatever. This is this like person that's just like a tag along. And I felt very shunned or I don't know, like an outsider because... It's like speaking the language of a, like, you're in a foreign country, you speak the language, but no one knows you speak the language. I felt like that. It was like, I know what you're saying, but you don't know that I know what you're saying. And I always felt like they were talking to him and never to us or to me. And so, honestly, it was really difficult because all I wanted to do was, like, stomp up and down and be like, I know what you mean. Like, I've been there. I can actually help you with the problem that you guys are talking about. But because you just think of me as the missus and not like a real person, then I don't know if I would, if you would listen, if I could actually offer the advice. And it was really difficult to make that transition of, okay, now I'm not in the driver's seat. Now I'm not the operations person. I'm not the one with the cool job. Like I'm the, I'm the support person. And for all the loggies and CE folks out there, you're like, ah, welcome to our world. This is how we feel. Maintainers too, right? Ah, you damn operators. But now that was me and it took, it was a big hit to my ego because I wasn't used to that. And my husband and I, we are very competitive people. We're type A personalities, both of us. The only difference is he's introverted and I'm extroverted, obviously. I think it was tough for us as well because I wasn't used to, I wasn't used to that dynamic of, okay, we follow you around and you're the VIP and I'm just like this person. And so I think to get over that, it was like, I had to really think about reframing how I saw it. Military spouses are not just these tag-along people that come with you to assignments. We are extremely important in that service member's being. We are the sounding board for all the ideas and the struggles that they have. We are holding down the fort when the service member deploys. We are, in large part, responsible for the family, keeping it all together and keeping the wheels on, basically. And without that support... The service member couldn't do what they do. And so for me, it was a matter of let's reframe this a little bit. It's not that I'm not cool or not the VIP, but my role is now switched. Now my role is I keep our family together. When he's deploying, do what he has to do. I'm the one that is here helping and making sure that he can deploy and not worry that things are going to go to hell in a handbasket at the house. And also, just there are so many ways in which. Military spouses provide value to the service member individual, individually, and then also to the unit. It's not just you're not just there. You can take an active role and, and help. And I think for me, a large part of this this sense of value as well it's it's it comes from that career. Like you were saying, like you you have this sense of I contribute to the family with all these things, but I also have this full time job that allows me to contribute financially, and that's why military spouse employment is so important and why i'm very passionate about helping others find that
0: love it and i think that the reframing of the role is such a good way to put it because i, I think that while your specific version of that was becoming a military spouse and having to deal with having a, a mil having a having someone in the military and having to refactor your expectations i think a lot of veterans show up to any job and like you said at the beginning we really get out at the top of our game like you literally like crescendo and then you get out and then you because like you have so many new contextual things that you have to deal with in the civilian world where you really have Mm -hmm. to like "Eh, eh," and then you have to and no one likes that build up no one likes i'm going through that right now where i feel like man, I suck now. And then I was like, ah, <laughs> I hated when I felt like I sucked as a second lieutenant. This is terrible. Right. And so I think that a lot of us have that ego that we have to check, whether it's because you're a mil- like, I'm a military spouse. Now, my wife, does- she was like, I remember I was here when I was going through the throes of my, just just like boredom of my job before I really <laughs> refactored my role. And my wife was like, Doing a Westpac. So she was in Guam and Hawaii and Japan picking up patients and like bringing them home. And I'm like, that's so fucking cool. And then she's looking at me on the beach and I was like, I hate you. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I get it. But
1: you're like, because you're also like, that's not me
0: anymore. Like,
1: I don't get to do those things. No. This
0: sucks. (laughs) Or, or Or at work when I'm interacting with people who are just true experts in artificial intelligence security or whatever I'm doing. And I'm like, man, I used to be really good at the thing that I was in. Now I'm mm-hmm. not like I'm back to being a learner. And how did you catch yourself to know you needed to refactor? Cause I think that a lot, I think that one of the big killers for a lot of veterans is we all feel these things that you and I are talking about, but you don't know why you're feeling those things a lot of the time so how Mm -hmm. did you build up that self-awareness to know that oh my gosh i'm jealous of my husband or oh my gosh i'm i'm working through my ego is stopping me from doing this thing or i need to go do communications work like how do you think you build up the self-awareness to self-diagnose
1: Oh man, off the top rope again, Billy.
0: Um, (laughs) We're a hard hitting podcast here. (laughs) No, this
1: is, these are great questions. And I don't know that you ever like truly figure it out. It's a work in progress. And you were talking about how do you have the self-awareness to know that it's your ego talking? I don't know. I feel, you know how when you ask someone advice, but you ask advice because you really just want your own advice validated or like your decision validated. I feel like, you know, that maybe it's your ego talking when you leave and you don't feel cool anymore And perhaps the thing to do is just to like say it out loud. Okay, is that me talking or is that my ego talking? Am I upset about this because there's genuinely something to be upset about? Or should I be proud of my spouse for doing what your wife did? Or, you know, for my husband who went to um, al udid a lot last year. Okay, am I proud of him? Yes. So the problem is me then. The problem is my ego. It's not that I can't provide the support to him or that I don't think what he's doing is, is worthwhile. The problem is truly that I am jealous of that opportunity that I wish I could be there, but instead I'm stuck here doing X, (laughs) Y, Z. So I think having that realization of, and trying to separate out, okay, what is, what about this is making me upset? Am I truly upset because I really wish I could go to Guam and Hawaii, or I'm upset because she gets to go and I don't. If it's the latter, it's probably the ego talking.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it very much so was in my case. I was just like, I just want a cool job it was my initial conclusion and then yeah, my be cool yeah and then my follow-on conclusion was why does my job being cool have anything to do with who i am as a person like yeah. if my job is paying me well and gives me time to be with my family and do everything i want isn't that what i want do i really want a job that's cool but i work 90 hours a week is that really what i want and i'm like no that's not what i want and so right. that's I just had to go multiple layers deep and that took time. And uh, I just think that for a lot of veterans, we don't, I've had to do a ton of work to build up enough self-awareness to be able to diagnose myself. And I just don't think Mm -hmm. a lot of vets do that. And so it's cool for you to be able to talk about you being able to do it. And I I really think that's amazing. And it's such great advice to, for people. If you're out there listening, take notes, but. uh...
1: You know, the best thing that you can do truly is write it, down and I know you're like but you're a writer so it's probably brilliant it is but even if you're not a writer writing it down can really help to clear some things up in your mind it doesn't have to be good you don't you're not turning it in for an assignment no one is grading you on your writing you don't have to show it to anybody just do it for your own benefit and I know everyone's oh I know the benefits of journaling I have so much to unpack or it takes too much time or my handwriting sucks or whatever I get that I made those excuses too 100%. I was like, nah, there's too much here. I don't really want to start on that. But the thing is, if you don't start on it, you're never going to unravel it. You're never going to pull it apart and the time is going to pass anyway. So why not just get started? And you don't have to, don't put that pressure on yourself. Don't sit there with a blank hundred page notebook and go, okay, today's the day that we unpack years worth of things. No. Um, There's a great book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. It's a little hippie. I get it. But one of the things that she advocates for is to write morning pages, where it's basically like first thing in the morning or after kids dropped off, whatever, you just vomit three pages of whatever's going on in your head. And it can be anything from, I don't know why I'm writing this to things to be grateful for, or just really anything that comes to mind. And I won't say that I do that every day because I certainly do not. But on the days that I do, I will tell you that the clarity that comes from just getting all the garbage out is night and day difference between days I do and days I don't. And so please, if you're listening, just take out a piece of paper, spend 10 minutes writing. It doesn't have to be brilliant. You can shred it if you want. You can throw it in the trash. You can burn it for all I care. But just start the habit of writing things down. Writing through your feelings can really help show you what you're really thinking about, what you think you should be thinking about, And where your head is going and what you want to be doing. And it can, it's also a lot harder to lie to yourself when you see your words written down. Oh, I love my job. Things are going great. And you read it and you're like, that's bullshit. (laughs) Nope, that's not true. So it makes you dive deeper. And then also it has the added benefit of the fact that like you can go back and read where you were. There's been so many times where I'm like, man, my life was really messed up a few years ago. And I read back of my journals or my, the writings that I did. And I'm like, man, I've come a long way. And I think that's really helpful too, because you're seeing personal growth over the course of the years that you spend journaling. And then the last thing that I'll leave you with on this one is if you're writing down a memory a day, there's a great TEDx story on this, or a TEDx video on this. I'm sorry. I don't remember the name. But he says homework for life. It's you write down one interesting thing that happened to you or one story that happened to you during the day. And at the end of a year, you can go back and put yourself back in these memories, relive them in vivid detail because you have them written down. And I think that's a great way, especially for vets to like go back and be like, oh, yeah, I remember when I was struggling with finding a job. And, oh yeah, I remember when I interviewed for that or, oh yeah, I remember when my little baby was born or took their first steps or whatever. And it's a way for you to like time travel. And it's quite amazing.
0: And I think that the being able to look back is such an amazing thing to do because uh, I don't know why, maybe it's just me, I doubt it. But I think <laughs> we as the vet community, we look, we need, we want to see improvement in at <laughs> a strategic level. Big massive wins. I was talking to someone yesterday and they were. I was like, You probably think that your expectation for yourself is you get your DD 214, you wake up the next day and you're a completely different person. That's what you think is going to happen. What's going to happen is in 10 years, you might be there. And (laughs) the these improve this like shifting of self is a game that happens in inches. It's boring. It's boring football, essentially, versus like really fun, like 50 yard, like bomb down the field passes, it's run down the middle every single time without fail. And for people like that's just people don't like that. It's not fun. It's not sexy. It's not interesting. And it's not cool to go through. And because improvement is so small, unless you're taking stock of yourself on a daily basis, you're going to miss it. And it's like, for me, I remember I was thinking like, why am I not huge yet on podcasting? And this was three weeks ago. And then I was like, I haven't even, then I just had to look at myself and go, I haven't even released half a year's worth of content yet. Like I've only been doing this for six months. That's crazy. That's not that much time. And if I didn't have a literal physical representation of my progress, what you're saying, Mm -hmm. then I wouldn't appreciate what I've done so far and honestly how how little I've been in this space. And so I think that's an amazing piece of advice for people because I think we need some medium by which to view our small wins because otherwise they just get lost because we don't look for the non-sexy wins. We want the like, I made 500,000, I got a new job and they're paying me an extra $200,000 and right. like those kinds of things. And so I think that's just such a awesome Piece of advice. So if you're out there listening, go do that. That sounds sick. I would highly recommend it.
1: (laughs) And if you're going to start writing and you're not sure where to start with this, start with what are my assumptions about what's going to happen after my transition? Mm. What do I assume will happen the day after? And seriously, sit there and think about, okay, it's the day after my separation date. What happens? What do I assume will happen? And then think about what are your expectations for what will happen? Start thinking through those things and then try to build upon what expectations are put on you by others or entities and what expectations do you have for yourself and then work back from there to figure out how to get there.
0: I think that's so great. The next thing that I want to ask you is in the military, we go from a very structured environment to almost no structure and you now exist in a world where you have four kids, four kids, three, three. okay. So you have three kids, you have three kids, you work from home. So no one's really looking over your shoulder. And you have a husband, so you've got a lot of things to manage, and it's all very loose and free, and how would you recommend people start to contend with all of the unstructuredness that exists outside of the military, especially when it comes to planning their day, working in a remote world where no one's there to, like, time bracket your day, Um, (laughs) how... How have you adjusted and what advice would you give to those who might be struggling with that?
1: Yeah. So I still keep a planner. I keep a paper planner because I find that is the best way for me to keep track of things. When I put things into my phone, it still makes me remember, but I feel like it's like false memory because it it provides the reminders for me. But when I write things down, it actually sticks. And so that's the first thing is like a, a planner and like paper, pen planner. But I think you're talking a little bit more broadly than that. So I will say that if there is no structure in your life, then you have to have the discipline to find the structure. Um, identify what an ideal day would look like for you. Just put aside all the responsibilities that you have. Be like, okay, in an ideal world, <laughs> this is what I would be doing. And I can't stand all the posts and like things I see on social media Oh, the perfect morning routine. It involves like getting up at four and like meditating for 30 minutes and reading 10 chapters out of your book and like all of this. I'm like, come on, first of all, that's crap. And then secondly, that does not into, take it into account at all the very real realities of like, my kid needs to get to school by a certain time. And my daughter has probably woken me up four times in the night to nurse or to she's crying or whatever. So the idea of getting up at five every day and following this structure is just not going to happen. However, And I would also say, so establish your own, but then have reasonable expectations for yourself. The military, you had to get up for PT. You went and worked out. You started your job. You did X, Y, Z. Yes, no one's making you do that now. So it is easy to slip on that stuff. But you are the only one who can hold yourself accountable. I use a really elementary system. It's very basic, but it works. And that is in my paper planner. I highlight every day that I've worked out or accomplished whatever it is that I wanted to do. So, if it's working out, great. If it's writing, fantastic. If there's work things that you need to get done, write them down and check them off as you do them. <laughs> it's really basic and I most people listening are like, "No duh, like obviously." But when I guarantee you, in you most charge, of those
0: people don't do it.
1: <laughs> like, right, well, that's the thing, yeah. right? Yeah, cuz it's easy to talk about, it's simple to talk about, but it's much harder to implement. But what I was saying before about the perfect morning routine, it doesn't exist. If it does, go ahead and thank your spouse for taking care of all the other things that need to get done because they are obviously doing them while you have this perfect curated routine of meditation, yoga, reading, whatever. But I would say be reasonable with yourself. If you miss a day, don't worry about it. Just have the accountability and the discipline to to get back to it. I don't write every day. I don't work out every day. But for the most part, 75% of the time works every time. (laughs) When it comes to work, I think the the best advice I can give there is you have to set yourself up for success the day before. As you're starting to close down for the afternoon or the evening, you've got 20, 30 minutes at the end of the day. Think about the top priorities. Think about what's urgent and then figure out which are the top one or two things that you absolutely have to get done. And if you time block them on your calendar, no kidding, putting a task on your calendar to accomplish it within that time frame. There's really no excuse for it. So you can plan it out where you have meetings, you have responsibilities, but if your two top things get done because you've planned for them to get done, then you're going to be a lot more successful than if you're like, oh, sometime generally tomorrow, I have to get this thing done that I'm not sure if I need to do or have to do, but I think I need to stop. Prioritize, figure it out if it's really important or if it's just urgent. Some things are important, but not urgent. And some things are urgent, but not important and figure out the difference between the two.
0: I think that the simplest strategies are probably the best ones. And even the simple strategies are hard to execute. So I think that for people who are out there, don't overcomplicate this. Definitely don't start with a lot of just like real nuanced things because you probably won't have the discipline to do them. Try and do it as simply as possible. And if you can do that, then start building upon that. Once it's uh, once it's done,
1: give yourself some grace. I mean, I was sick all last week, right? In fact, you can probably still hear it in my voice. But the weeks preceding, I was doing really well at working out. I was getting out for runs and walks, and I was doing what I wanted to do. And then I got sick with a cold, and I sure as hell did not work out with a sinus cold. Like It just didn't happen. I was tired. I was sick. I wasn't going to do it. And I could sit here and mope and be like, oh, man, I got off track. Like, that sucks. Or I could get back out there and start doing it again. The, again, the time is going to pass anyway. You might as well start today or restart today. Because otherwise that week of, oh no, I didn't work out. Now it turns into two, then it goes into three. And then by the time you get to a month, you're like, just give up on the whole thing. No, there's no need for that all or nothing attitude. You don't have to have all or nothing. It's okay to do it half the time. Because if you're increasing, if you're getting better, like 1% a day, think about how that compounds over the course of a year. Think about how working out even two days a week or three days a week is better than working out zero days a week. And I'm using working out because that's top of mind for me. But whatever that is for you, if it's writing, if it's watercolor, if it's basket weaving, it doesn't matter. If you're doing it when you can and giving yourself the grace to realize that it's not going to happen every day, then you're doing a hell of a lot better than if you were sitting on your thumbs watching Netflix.
0: The small changes over a long period of time is such a great concept that it makes sense to look at, but it's definitely hard to to, uh, do. But the last, one of the last questions I want to ask you is community. You moved a lot. You've detached yourself from the military. You're still a veteran, but you do have to move with your husband and reset. How have you worked on cultivating community in your life to ensure that you still have those connections and those people around you to help when you need it and everything else?
1: Truthfully, it's been really difficult because one, the pandemic didn't help anything, (laughs) but then also for as extroverted and sociable as I am, I'm also very hesitant to get into a friendship or some type of relationship when I know that I'm going to be leaving in a year. So it's weird because even though I think we all crave community, I've been keeping to myself a little bit more than I ever had before. (coughs) So most of my community comes from my coworkers because that has been the longest stretch of time where I've known a group of people. And what's bizarre is I've only met a handful of them in person a couple of times, but we are online and working side by side often enough and talking over Zoom and other mediums often enough where I do feel like I've made that community at work. And I have been at my company now for about almost seven years in February. So I think that's for me where that sense of community comes from. I know that having full-time employment isn't the case for everyone though. And so if you are in that position and you do find yourself feeling isolated, I do think it's important to try and find that community, whether it's in your neighborhood or at a school or at a church or even in a group that you join because you have a similar interest. When we were in Texas, I actually joined a writer's group for a little while. And it was cheesy, but it was fun because you're in a group of folks who enjoy doing this one thing that you also enjoy. And what do you know, there's some common bonds there. I think veterans often feel like if the bonds haven't been forged by combat and blood and war, then they're not real relationships. Okay, true, but let me tell you, the relationships I had that were forged by war, blood and conflict, I don't have those relationships anymore. Those people all continued on in the military. I got out and we don't chat anymore. Those folks that I work with regularly on a day-to-day basis These are people that I will stay in touch with. So don't think that, I know that we all miss the camaraderie and there's definitely no matching that, but also you can create the camaraderie around you by the type of people that you attract to yourself and the type of people that you seek out.
0: I love it. And I love that you found community in a means through the writers group. And I would always encourage veterans to find some avenue of community Outside of just the veteran community and also Mm -hmm. outside of work for my wife and I, it's been church, having a small group that's been hugely beneficial for us. And so you can find that doesn't have to be through church, but a gym, volunteering, a writer's group, finding something like that is just so amazing. And I highly encourage everybody to seek that out for sure. So last question before we end, what is the one piece of advice you want to leave the listeners with?
1: My one piece of advice is you don't have to get it right the first time. Hmm. Take the pressure off yourself. You're not going to find the perfect job in the perfect location with the perfect salary out of the gate. I would say that it is completely okay to not know what you want to do and just stepping your toes into the pool one little bit at a time is completely fine. It took me five years four different jobs to figure out that, hey, maybe I want to do communications. Maybe I want to do writing for a living. And this is several years on from me leaving the Air Force. And it also has nothing to do with what I did in the Air Force. So be kind to yourself. Give yourself some grace. Don't expect to have it right the first time. You don't have to have it right. You just have to be on the journey toward getting there.
0: I love it. Sam, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for being just willing to be so real and just being vulnerable, talking about your emotions. That's uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do that and just, yeah, giving your story because I know it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you. Thanks. And for everyone else out there, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the end of the episode. We do this for you. We hope that it helps you on your journey. If you want to support, the channel the best thing that you can do is comment subscribe on your favorite platforms and share this information with those who need to hear it we've had an absolute blast hanging out with all of you today and we will catch you on the next episode of the post-military podcast Peace.